Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Rich Pepeat. Hello, Rich. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm doing very well. Now, uh, what's the name of this of, of your film that we're going to be talking about today? It's called One Rogue Reporter. Uh, give us a brief synopsis about that. Well, I suppose I am said One Rogue Reporter, although I'm not in the habit of usually referring to myself in the third person. Hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the film is about me uh, being a tabloid journalist um, and deciding back in 2011 to, to pack it in quite publicly. And, uh, and my journey from then on, I suppose, uh, sort of being part of the Leveson Inquiry and then deciding that, you know, dissatisfied with, with uh, how some of these editors were getting away with murder, as I saw it, deciding to go after them and uh, turn the tables on them, uh, use some of the skills that I was taught work in the industry against them, hiring paparazzis to follow them around, delving into their private lives, generally being a complete bastard. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a satirical comedy doc um, with, you know, lots of, I suppose, quite, um, it's a mix of different elements. There's bits of stand-up that I've done. There's sort of old footage from uh, old journalism movies. Uh, there's the stunts, which I suppose are the, are, are the sort of the meat of it. And then there's interviews of people like Steve Coogan and Hugh Grant and John Prescott and John Bishop and lots and lots of other cool people sort of talking, quite frankly, about their experiences uh, with the press. Um, and some of the characters of these people, like Kelvin McKenzie and the editor of the Mail, Paul Dacre, um, just what arseholes they are, really. Um, yeah, I, mean, I mean, and that's a, that's a good stepping off point. So, so given, given the sort of very powerful public figures that, that the doc sort of goes after in the end, in and amongst all that, how did you gain sort of financial support to make a movie like this? Uh, well... It's, it's as any doc maker will at the beginning of their career will say. It's so difficult to get money. Um, mm. You haven't got much of a track record because you know um, me and my fellow filmmaker Tom Jenkinson. Um, you know he had a bit of a background in TV. He worked on shows like Strutter before and uh, a few other shows. 
Um, so, so he, he, you know, he did have a bit of a background. But when we were approaching people who do fund documentary and saying, "Look, we'd like to make this film. Can we have a bit of money?" Um, the response you kind of get is, uh, "Well, uh, what have you made before? Why should we give you money? You might just fuck it up." You know what I mean? Uh, you, you, which I understand. I guess I understand. It's like, well, if you've never made anything before, you might just piss it up a wall. Um, so in the end, we just went right. I guess we're, we're just going to have to plow on um, because really, um, heart, when it's a film that's kind of you know about my experiences, uh, there isn't really that much of a cost other than your time. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I was writing it, you know, I was um, collating all the material that was, uh, we weren't filming and Tom was filming it and editing it. So there wasn't actually a huge amount of cost um, at, at first. But then also our ambitions for the film were very low because we just sort of, uh, it started out as a, a stand-up show that I took to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2012. And so there was just a few of these stunts that I'd done against editors. And it was only when I toured that show and came out the end of it and um, sort of I said to Tom, well, you know, what should we do with this footage now? And the idea of doing a doc uh, sort of appealed and, and people, we just wanted to get some of the, the, the stunts out to a wider... So uh, what, what were the stunts that you were using on your, as part of your, your stand-up then? Yeah, so it, it was a stand-up show that, that was interactive in the sense it had video in it as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the sort of there was the stand-up. I mean, to be honest, I, I say stand-up in the loosest sense. I mean, I, I don't pretend that I'm a, a stand-up comedian by profession. I'd, I'd never done comedy before I went to the Edinburgh Fringe, really. Yeah. It was a stand-up-esque show in that I was standing in front of an audience and telling jokes and, uh, you know, around the subject of journalism. But... Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, it was only after that that I suppose we decided, well, maybe we'll just film one of the shows and then we can just release, um, you know, me on stage with the stunts and we'll call that a documentary. And we did try it. We did sort of try, uh, we filmed, a, filmed one of the performances at the Soho Theatre. And then when we looked back at it, we just went, it doesn't really work because there's such a difference between the pace of live performance and the pace required in a documentary. And it, you know, it just felt really slow and, you know, the jokes didn't quite work as well when you had, you know, you were divided by a, uh, you know, through a camera. And, and so we went, no, this, this doesn't give a fair representation of, of what we're trying to say, what the message we're trying to give. And so we decided, right, well, let, let's work a bit harder on this and try and make it into a, an actual proper documentary. And maybe we'll just stick it out on YouTube or something like that. Um, and it was only when we started putting it together and, and, you know, a few people started looking at the very rough cut we had that, you know, people were sending it to other people and going, you know, you, you've really got something here. You should, you know, you should make it into a proper documentary and try and get it, you know, into festivals and that sort of thing. And, and it was at that stage that someone sent it to Sheffield Dockfest, and even though it was a very, very rough cut, they, they really loved it and said, look, we'll take a punt on this. I know it's six months ahead, but we think that if you say you can get it done in six months, then you, you'll have it ready for then. So, so we worked really, really hard for six months to really sort of, that was the catalyst of us going, we've really got up our game now. We've, you know, this is a great opportunity for us uh, yeah. to make something 
excellent on, a, on an amazing stage um, with you know, some of the best documentaries from around the world. And so we really, really put our heart and soul in, into making it. <coughs> um, and, you know, luckily it, it went down really well at Sheffield. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing to think that, you know, here we are now and it's come out on Netflix and, uh, you know, it's being distributed around the world. It's, it's very exciting. Yeah, we, we, we're chuffed to bits. So what was what was the, uh, from from a kind of documentary point of view then what was that transition from it being <clears throat> a sort of standard routine that you thought you could video you could, thought you could just record and present and then thinking right how do you make a more a more fuller documentary that like you say has got pace and and that's kind of that that idea of it being a bit cinematic you know and having that kind of mm. the thing we're used to in watching a film although although a documentary has is is about something real as opposed to a fictional narrative it still has to, for, for it to hold an audience, it still has to have the idea of a, of a story arc, doesn't it, in a way? Completely. And I mean, I, you know, I've done script writing and, and written sitcoms and things like that, which have uh, <laughs> been, been optioned and never made. As a <laughs> So, I mean, I, I think I've got quite a good idea of, uh, of story arc. I mean, it wasn't like I was writing a script from a perspective. I've never written anything uh visual like that before yes and and i suppose the the difficulty kind of was is that we had already filmed the stunts before we had any idea of what the structure of the film was going to be and that posed difficulties because you, what you have then is sort of four set pieces that have no relationship <laughs> between them um other than the fact that i'm in them and i'm in character as this grubby tabloid hack yeah. Um, but uh, how do you link those together? How do you make this now feel like a proper story arc? And that that was quite challenging. Uh, I think we achieved it, but it was a real challenge, a real trial and error. Because as much as you on paper can sort of write scripts and and sort of go, well, let, you know, I'll do this in voiceover, I'll say this, that, and the other. In practice, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And, and also, you know, what you're going to... It's that thing of, well, we've got to put something on screen. What, what are we going to put on screen here? And uh, we haven't got any money for archive. Uh, that's, that's a difficulty. Um, how can we get hold of, uh, you know, a decent archive that we want for as little money as possible? Um, and, and then we sort of, you know, started really researching, uh, you know, fair use and... and how we could, you know, it was a very developing area and still is, but, you know, it was really developing at the time. There was new laws being put through about using um, uh, using footage fair use for satire. Yeah. And we saw an opportunity there that, you know, speaking to lawyers, that we fell in, in into that remit, though it was completely untested. And we went, well, hang on, we may well be able to take some footage here and <coughs> it's free. And that's really, really going to help us to sort of get this over the line if we can take some bits of footage and um, not have to rack up a big bill doing so. Um, and, and so that was a big breakthrough when, when consulting our lawyers. They went, yeah, no, I think here, here, here and here. You're not going to have to pay for that. Um, and so what, so what was the, what, what's the fine line then between copyright that you've learned about copyright infringement versus sort of fair use in the context of... Uh, it, it's such a comp. It's so, it, 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 I wish I could sit here and tell you uh, a sort of a, a steadfast rule, and there really isn't. Every single bit of footage needs to be dealt with in an individual basis, and that means writing up an argument 
as to why uh, you know why you believe that's fa that's fair use. And the thing is, with fair use is it's never a um, it's always only a defence in that you can't assert fair use. You can only defend yourself with fair use. So it means that you're really doing it on the basis that you you know if someone comes at you and says, "Oi." Mm. We have the copyright to this footage of, say, the Leveson inquiry, or um, you know, Rupert Murdoch walking down the street, whatever it might be. Um, if someone comes at you and says, "Oi, that's our footage," um, you can then go, "Well, we're claiming fair use." So that always puts you in a rather dodgy situation because you're never quite sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're putting the film out there without really any certainty that you're not going to get yourself caught in a protracted sort of battle but you just have to get yourself in a position where you've got good legal advice and um you know people go you know if this if, if if someone did come at you we feel that you would be um very safe and we feel you'd win that argument and we had um uh, a lawyer in a lawyer here we had a lawyer in los angeles um who is the world expert on on fair use right um who so you know that's <coughs> We said that was quite. That was an investment that we decided that on balance to to sort of get that um, that advice or, and get those sort of people on board would be a lot cheaper than sort of going the normal route. But that's not to say that we didn't buy footage because we did go through archives and buy footage that we felt we couldn't defend. Um, yeah, no, if, just 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 to stop you there. I think that I mean you said you said you couldn't give us a steadfast rule, but actually what you described is actually a very very rounded bit of advice really which is it and it's certainly that point about um it's it's for, it's not for you to assert but it's for you to defend when challenged that you're using something that you've not got the right to use i think that's a very interesting way to look at it and obviously appointing and having legal representation to at least give you some 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 foundation to build that on is is sound advice for any documentary filmmaker i think um well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean that's, that's one of the things from, from certainly from the Ripflex podcast. Certainly, want to want to sort of get to is that you know the lessons learned from filmmakers making these films, and clearly, you didn't know that going into it, and now you know that's the kind of that them's that's the the landscape you're walking into when you start doing it. But go on, sorry, you were saying you you did use archive footage, so yeah, I mean that that was uh, you know that was part of, of what we used. Uh, we also used quite a few. Um, uh, sort of old journalism films, classic journalism films, and I think the idea behind that was uh, there, there's, there is a canon of amazing, amazing forgotten, but not just the really famous ones like the Front Page and His Girl Friday. You know, there's some great films out there that have just been forgotten, and you can find on archive.org and things like that um, that, that are about journalism. And what the idea that I always had was I, I love the idea of contrasting the ideals of journalism. Um, certainly, you know, I had this romantic notion of what journalism was um, when I was uh, younger, and, and it was always something that I thought of as a career. Uh, I thought, oh, journalism, that would be exciting, you know, travelling around the world and, you know, uh, getting up in the face of bad guys and asking tough questions and holding power to account. And, and, and the reality, I suppose, the letdown of when I actually entered the industry and finding out that, oh, actually, 
Uh, yeah, it's not quite like that, is it? In fact, you know, we're kind of just kicking downwards at people and we are part of the powerful. Um, and, and I really wanted to contrast that by, by using some of these sort of uh, really funny scenes from black and white films and contrasting that with the reality of me actually being a journalist today um, and, and trying to do that for, for comedic effect, really. And also, the, the, the kind of... It, it's, it's sort of self-fulfilling, isn't it, if you, if you portray... The, the trade as heroic, which all those classic films do, and yet there still was a kind of rife kiss and tell tabloid hackery going on even back then. It's not it's not a new thing, is it? Not the idea of scandal. What I think what I think has developed over the second half of the twentieth century and into the twenty first century, which is what your documentary sort of hits upon, is that they don't care who it is now. It used to be that if you were a celebrity of some description, you were fair game, but now it's kind of like if this story will press the right buttons with our readership and get us readers, then we'll keep doing it. If this is a debate that's in the public sphere that we can really fuel, I think, like, obviously, what Levison drew out about, you know, the way the McCann story was covered and things like that, is it wasn't about finding any truth out. It was just about people, like, reading about it. About selling newspapers, it's just, it's the, you know, I've always said that there's a real tension between the the business of journalism, the, the capitalist profit motive which is necessarily self-interested and the public interest that's sort of inherent to proper journalism and when those two things are put together as is a really intention at the moment in modern journalism it tends to be that capitalist self-interest to, to make money to sell papers which is trumping the public interest of is this in the public interest you know do do people should people know about this is it fair to go screwing people over delving into people's lives etc just for you to make some money um you know i think that's a real problem i don't if you remember i don't if you remember like the hoo-ha that followed um andrew marr's book my trade when that came out um I, it was, you know, it was funny that I, I, it was always on my reading list of research books when I was making the film. I never actually got round to reading it, funny enough. But I, I have heard it's, it, it, you know, it, it's quite insightful. Well, it's it's kind of it, it doesn't it, it paints the vanilla view of journalism as opposed to this exciting one. It's kind of, he talks the the great example I remember most is when he was news editor of the BBC, and he he has the choice between two stories. One is more interesting but has no visuals. One has visuals but isn't very interesting and they choose the visuals so the mm. news agenda is about what looks good and will get an audience not mm. about which again is what the and, and it wasn't obviously the public outcry to andrew Marr's book it was the the journalist the journalism trade the the, the, the media that was upset well, it, about it. Well, it it's interesting you know the 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 backlash i suppose to a degree of um journalists who um, of taking a dislike, I suppose, to the fact that I've made a film uh, about the journalism industry and the, the sort of, you know, distaste, that, almost a betrayal, I suppose, is the sense that sometimes I get uh, that, that I've decided to make a film about journalism and not portray it in a sort of flattering light. Uh, and which to me, I just it sort of kind of makes the point of the film for me is there is this real hypocrisy between um, journalists feeling they have the right to ask whatever questions they want and uh, um, you know to hold people to account, 
um, and demand that people be transparent and, and you know freedom of speech, our right to say what we want. But when that that torch is turned round and questions are asked of them and a light is shone on their practices and, and tough questions are asked, there's a real thin skinness. Um, this sense of entitlement that, that how dare you question us, how dare you portray us in anything but a heroic light. Um, and and you know, I think my film shows that some of the characters at the top of the industry are anything but heroic uh, and, and are fairly despicable, in fact. No, no, without a doubt. And amongst those, those people that... that um that don't like to have the light shone on them. You've got a number of celebrities in there who have been very visual, very vocal during the process, certainly of Leveson and, and, and leading up to it. The likes of Steve Coogan, Hugh Grant, and the um, <coughs> people like o uh, Owen Jones and, and John mm. Prescott, Chris Bryant. I mean, how did you get those people on board to come and to, to, to put, sort of put on the record in this sense? Because obviously it's quite holistic, isn't it, to, to under the banner of like one rogue reporter documentary to be uh, lending your voice as opposed to appearing on Newsnight for a segment? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I can't say it was, it was hugely difficult. Um, there was, uh, yeah, it was, it was just a matter of um, sometimes opportunity. Um, there was a, I went to interview Steve Coogan down at his house uh, yeah, yeah. near Brighton, and it happened that that evening he was holding a party because the Labour Party conference was down there, and he was holding a party at his house for selected people from the conference and MPs. I think, I think it was sort of a, you know, it was a hacked off sort of event. And um, it happened that, that I was interviewing that day and, and, you know, said, well, you know, stick around, you know, at, for the party. And so we were there with our camera and everything. And, you know, in through the door walks, John Prescott and people like that. And you kind of go, right, OK, uh, let him have a couple of drinks. And then... <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, go, oh, hi, John, uh, how you doing? We're making this documentary, would you mind being interviewed? And he's sort of like, uh, when's that? Um, quite busy. And I said, well, how about right now, uh, about 10 feet to your right? <laughs> wow, okay. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that, it was a bit of a touch of luck with a, with a couple of the interviews. But um, you know, people like Owen Jones, I sort of know Owen, and um, uh, Hugh Grant, uh, I know him through Hacked Off, and... Uh, yes, yeah, so I can't say it was, it was hugely difficult um, uh, to, to sort of get those people on board. Um, and I think it was important to get some other voices in there. Um, I mean, you know, it's not a balanced documentary. It's not like a, half of the people there are, are sort of very pro-press and half are anti. I mean, it's a, it's a polemical doc. So all the people I have are kind of people who are singing off the same hymn sheet as me. Which yeah. you know is a criticism that that has been levelled, um, but I, to me, I, my response is always that I didn't set it's my documentary. Yeah. I can get how I want, and and I'm not pretending this is um, supposed to be every side of the story. I wanted to make a documentary that was a statement that was supposed to be a funny romp through what I thought was the lay of the land, and I picked people who I felt supported. Um, that argument and, and furthered that narrative. Um, and I think that it would have really slowed it down and would have, would have ruined the style that I wanted to make a documentary in had I done otherwise. The other thing is, to, to be honest, is most people in a, in a, who would be pro-press um, in this sense uh, wouldn't have been in the film anyway. They would have said, no, most of them hate me. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> they would have just assumed that I was going to turn them over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. So they wouldn't have. Um, but you know, for me, I, I was always very conscious throughout the film. <laughs> um, you know, am I making a film about myself? That was always something that I remember with Tom. We always used to, I always used to say to him, I used to have these moments of sort of like waking up at four in the morning and going, it, it's a really difficult process when you're making a film of which you are technically the main character of. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't, you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, if it becomes a film just about you and you're presenting yourself in a positive light, you, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to make a puff piece about myself. No, no, but I think, I think, I think that's, that's, that's the interesting thing about the documentary is that I think for the first 20 minutes, I mean, I mean, in terms of the storytelling, it's really neat because obviously you start off with the, I'm going to meet this, this evil man. I'm not going to tell you his name, but that's my hook on you while you go into the rest of this movie. And obviously you reveal at the end who that is. Um, but then it has to be about you to start with for then it to grow into the bigger issue, which is the problems we have with the press. Because you're... Your story, I mean, it, it was quite, you know, even for someone, I mean, I've been a periodical journalist, I've written about, you know, magazine stuff, but I didn't think of the idea of a, of a tabloid journalist dressing up in a burqa, you know, to get the story. I didn't think, and, and, and the idea that, you know, I think, did, did, is it Crossdresser as well? Did you do that one as well? Did you do, as, yeah. to get the, so, so in a way that's, I mean, that's, that's that's tantamount to a sting. It's not really a story. You know, it's not. You're not observing from a kind of objective point of view. You're going. I'm going to throw a hand grenade in to create yeah. to create a mess, and they're going to write about the mess, and then our readers yeah. will love it. And that that makes sense as a process. But it's also it's important to, for us as the audience to understand who you are and why. Then when you point the light at Paul Paul Dacre, is it Dacre? I can never pronounce Dacre, his name. Yeah. Dacre. Um, we understand why, because I mean, it it didn't feel like, and it, and in a way, I, I and this this is my opinion. The film, I guess, is that it, it didn't feel like it was about you. It was about you. You were kind of going, but can't even can't, can't this isn't changing. It's like this because that's the one thing that I've, I mean, that the weight that fell on me at the end was, you know, after Levison, and and what and the kind of things you're able to point out just from you making this film was um, what has changed or improved since. I don't feel like we've had any great earth-shattering difference in the way the media works? Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a battle still ongoing um, that uh, will sort of, at the moment, things are slightly on hold because of the election. And, and the, the reason is, is that the political will behind sort of enforcing uh, Leveson and pushing it through and what Leveson recommended has sort of been sucked out of the situation by the election because no, none of the big parties really want to get the papers' uh, backs up in in the run up to an election because it's just going to bring hellfire upon them at the last time they need it. Mm. So you know there there is a, a bit of a collective cowardice that's occurring in that sense. However, you know whatever party, um, yeah, well I say whatever party. I think if if Labour get in power. Um, then there will be a uh, an impetus to sort of uh, confront um, uh, the press again because what they've set up for themselves is a, a, what they call a Leveson compliant regulator is an absolute sham, you know, an absolute joke. And uh, you know, I think that that's recognised um, that all they've done is take the failed press complaints commission, give it a new name 
keep all the same people pretty much and and pretend that somehow they've reformed and they haven't in in the absolute scientist and well the interesting thing is is that you know there's all this talk about contrition and how much things have changed but you know it's not very contrite to basically try and pull the wool over everyone's eyes once again and set up a very self-serving um completely lacking in independence regulator um you know, what Leveson recommended was not state regulation of the press, was not a situation where proper journalism um, couldn't be undertaken. When you have people like Nick Davis of The Guardian, who probably the finest investigative journalism this country's seen in decades, um, saying that he does not feel there's any threat by what Leveson recommended to him doing his job, um, I think the people need to sit up and, and listen to that. What was always a threat was the right of, of newspapers to basically make things up um, and, and to spin things whatever direction, ignore the facts in pursuit of a, a decent story. That's what's always been a threat, and that's why they've fought so hard against it, um, because they're, they're scared that their very business model, one of sensationalism and titillation over truth, uh, has been at risk. Um, but I don't think the battle's over. They, they certainly haven't won. Okay. Because well, it's interesting when the way it all panned out, because I remember doing... Um, God, 10 years ago now, but doing some some um, Institute of Journalism sort of distance learning stuff where I used to go down to Canary Wharf and meet with an old journalist and he'd check off the, the way I'd done my stories. And it was the idea that you would make things up, the idea that you could be legally exposed for not telling the truth was at the heart of what they were trying to tell you to do. You know, make sure everything's sound, make sure you can back things up. But in fact, the industry trades on just getting stuff out there quick enough yeah, and that's part of the problem is, is speed is now more important than accuracy in the internet age. Let's just get it out there as quick as possible. Um, you know, I, from speaking to journalists, you know, they do say that things have tightened up um, to a degree in newsrooms. Um, in certain newsrooms, you know, there's, there, there is more sort of le legal uh, presence there about certain things. Um, but then if you look at something like the mail, all that's really happened is that uh, the industry has morphed into something else and that you have something like the mail online, which is, you know, an insipid creation of, of just guff. <laughs> and it's the biggest newspaper website in the world. And the sad thing is, is that for young journalists entering the industry, coming out of university, one of the opportunities that they all have, sort of waiting at the gates is, is these people saying, come work at the Mail Online for £90 a day and, you know, rewrite pictures, you know, captions about Kim Kardashian on a beach and, you know, celebrities getting out of cars and walking through supermarkets and, you know, it, it's, that's just not journalism and I think what people need to recognise is that this is a real threat to our democracy, that if all the talented journalists who have got the skills to do proper investigations and, and pursue public interest <coughs> uh, causes are sitting there writing about celebrities and who they're shagging and that sort of thing, then there's a real gap <laughs> that's left between actually holding people, uh, genuine people in power to account. But, I mean, I think what we've seen, certainly, I guess since, since I guess what Michael Moore was doing in the 90s is that, in many senses, real journalism is happening making documentaries. You know, uh, certainly. Well, I mean, someone like John Pilger—that certainly is stuck well, in I, trade now. It's sort of yeah. making, <laughs> making, making a documentary about situations around the world much more. <clears throat> well, I mean, look, for for me, that that was certainly um, 
you know, I, I, I always, I suppose, working at somewhere like the Daily Star, I always thought it'd be great to be able to sort of, uh, you know, do the journalism that I want to do and pursue the stories that, that I want to pursue. And I couldn't really see how how that that could happen. And I guess uh, somewhat by by chance, I've sort of stumbled across a, a way of doing the sort of work that I want to do. And, and you know, I'm still a journalist at heart. And um, you know, I, I do think that One Rogue Reporter is a is a piece of journalism. It's not a it's it's not a uh, <laughs> conventional one, but it's a piece of journalism nonetheless. And I'm very interested in how you can. Um, sort of mix together journalism and comedy, um, and try and make uh, the you know journalism entertaining in in that in that sense. Well, um, I mean, I, look, I think you know, Mark, Mark Thomas certainly yielded that sort of combo, hasn't he? I mean, that's what he's done no, for, I mean, for the he, last ten he, years. He's uh, certainly people like Mark Thomas or the Yes Men as well. Yeah. Um, they they're certainly inspirations for. Um, you know, for the film, there are certainly people who are, I'm big fans of, and uh, I, I actually I actually met the uh, the Yes Men um, the other week, mm. and, uh, and that was a they'd seen my film, and that was <laughs> that was great. I was uh, I was dead chuffed about that. But I mean, even like day to day, I mean, you look at something like um, like Vice, which you know, on the one hand, starts off life taking photographs of what trainers you're wearing and what haircut you've got, and now it's doing films with African despots and out in the Afghan mountains and stuff. It's quite it's quite interesting how docu- the documentary format is is has got that popular does have a popular appeal. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think there is there is uh, there's certainly that there. Um, I guess you know. The thing about Vice is um, they do do some great work. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're the first film sort of riding around with ISIS, and you know they are a, now a, a news force unto themselves. And, and I think that the problem is is that you have these things, these counterculture um, sort of brands like Vice, and it, it's always there comes a point when the mainstream ends up. Uh, sort of sucking them in, um, buying them out, and and that's kind of what happened to Vice. And at the moment, they do have kept their independence. It seems, mm. um, and they seem to be doing their own thing. But News International, you know, have a a, a a huge stake in them. And I wonder how, in ten years' time, whether they'll be dragged more and more towards doing the sort of um, journalism that that is closer to what the Sun or Fox News or something end up doing. Do you know what I mean? If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. When you were were setting up your stunts with these various high-profile people, um, was there any... I mean... What I was amazed at watching the film is that, and, and obviously your, the, the narrative of your thing is to tr- hope is is to is to point out the worst in a way. You're not you're not trying to pick them up and, and advertise them in any other way. Mm. Yet still, all their reactions seemed to be quite minimal. It was you know it didn't <laughs> there was like an arrogant <laughs> dignified arrogance almost to 
the way it, they responded to what you were doing, pointing out their hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting uh, that that you know <laughs> that uh, you know certainly that they didn't really want to to engage, and mm. I think that they are clever enough not to want to get embroiled in a screaming match with me. Yeah. Um, as much as I, I want to provoke, um, they're clever enough not to not to end up um, sort of standing on the street effing and blinding. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I certainly have no doubt, and I think it comes across, that they are uh, uh, very very unhappy about my presence, shall we say. Oh, no, no, there's definitely... There's definitely uh... Concern to be out of there quick smart. That's definitely you definitely achieve that much. Um, I, I, I was was there anything in what was the biggest revelation for you? I'm obviously going into this. You had the experience of being a tabloid journalist, of the kind of things you're expected to do, and obviously what your peers were doing. But but going into this, what did you find out that was news to you, as it were? Um. Oh. <laughs> that, what, what did I find out that was news to me? That's a tough question. Um, hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not too sure, really. Um, so what did I find out that was? I mean, I, I think that most of it was was stuff that uh, that sort of uh, that I understood. It was more of a message, a way of um, trying to convey that to people who hadn't spent years within within the industry, really. Mm. Um, it was it was more uh, look. I know this about this person. How am I going to to sort of you know put them on the spot and, and expose it in, in a funny way? Um, so yeah, I, I don't think there was any massive revelations that we had along the way. And how, I have to ask, how long was the um, was that Kelvin McKenzie interview that you managed to get? Uh, <laughs> we're all giving spoilers away as to what how how it, how it transpires, but I mean the full thing is is probably about twenty five minutes, and right. it was a it was really really tough editing it down because the full thing is in itself glorious, and yeah. it, it sort of we didn't want to take bits out because mm. it you know that it, it just playing it just as it is it is very entertaining, but we knew that we we just had to really chop it right right down. But uh, perhaps one day we'll find an outlet for just sticking the, the whole the whole thing because he does, you know some of the things that he says that don't make the film are shocking. <laughs> no, I can. I mean, friend, I've had friends of mine who've been in meetings when he's come in as a kind of fixer, and it's terrifying <laughs> with the mm. sounds of things. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that that to me is the you know, is the most enjoyable part of the whole film is him being all bombastic and alpha male. And then the tables being completely turned on him, and mm. all of a sudden finding out of nowhere that he is on the back foot and desperately trying to sort of find a way out of the room in a dignified fashion. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean that that is the that is the um, the high point of the whole film. I think it's fair to say, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um... What was when you went? Like you said you had these stunts, and then it was trying to knit them together into some narrative that you were going to make to make the documentary. Um, what was? How did that story you tried to tell and the coverage you got sort of change or develop once you got into the editing suite? A lot. I mean, yeah, a huge amount. Uh, you know, this being the the first uh, documentary ever made. 
there was no real I've never been trained in making a documentary or, or anything yeah. like that so it was a case of making it up as as it went along really and mm. and so I'd, I'd sort of written uh, a script of, of how I saw it going and what you know I imagined uh, being on screen as we went along but then obviously writing that on a piece of paper and seeing that on a screen are completely different things and you know I think a lot of time was wasted a lot of time was wasted on things that never ended up making the film I remember me and Tom ended up going out for two days with uh, a copy of the Daily Star um, and a leaf blower right yeah. and just me blowing this copy of the Daily Star around London with a leaf blower whilst he filmed it. And the idea was to slow it right down and start putting effects on it and make it into... I, I guess we were slightly channeling um, uh, uh, American Beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking and, that. Uh, you know, but, but it, it was, it was going to be framed slightly differently. It was going to be a real close-up and just following from behind this newspaper as it went through London and we went out into forests and... <laughs> You name it, we went everywhere with these two weird blokes walking, you know, people walking their dog, and then they'd see these two blokes come around the corner in the middle of a forest, one with a leaf blow, the other one with a newspaper. And a, and a dancing Daily Star. And, 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 and <laughs> what the hell are these two doing? And none of it ended up making the film at all after all of that. Um, there was lots of things like that that we kind of thought, oh yeah, that'll work. And uh, in reality, um, it, it didn't. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was a real pro. There's certainly, I, I'm looking forward to making another documentary and, and learning uh, from the mistakes, really. Oh, that's, and that's a good segue. Uh, what, what were, so, I mean, for somebody who might be thinking about or, or in maybe in the process of making a documentary, what were some of the hard lessons that you learned that you won't be repeating? Well, you know, what I always say is I think that I get asked quite a lot is like, you know, advice. And I think the advice I always have is, is, is just bloody make things. Do you know what I mean? Just, just mm. actually start making it. We spent a lot of time sort of sitting around, um, sort of going, where are we going to get some money from? Oh, this sucks. This ain't fair. And then when we finally just got off for us, we actually just get filming. You know, you, you can along the way gather momentum. And, you know, you can still be trying to raise money whilst you're making something. And you can, uh, you know, build it and they will come, I think is my, is my philosophy now, is, is that, you know, you just need to start pursuing the stories and, and, and the filmmaking that you want to do. Mm. And along the way, you just got to have faith that, that people will get on board. And out of nowhere, people come along who help out and, and provide um, uh, support and advice that can improve uh, that can improve things and uh, and so yeah I mean that 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 I guess is my is my big piece of advice um, I, I don't you know I don't really feel like in a in a filmmaking sense I mean you know I guess that you know my style of filmmaking is not all beautiful shots and everything is gorgeously filmed because that's not my background and you know I, I although I think there's a place for that in in filmmaking the sort of films that I guess I'm interested in making don't really rely necessarily on the cinematography. It, it's much more about you know the story itself, and I like things being a bit rough and ready and done on the hoof and feeling like you know it, it's real, it's raw, and that's just a style of filmmaking that I like. Um, 
and, and so yeah, I, I don't really spend a huge amount of time worrying about sort of spending fourteen hours on Hampstead Heath to get a perfect sunset, etc. <laughs> but in saying that, there is there is some elements in there where you where clearly you you and is it Tom? Did you say yeah? You, you, you're conscious, like you know the the aftermath of you doing the Neville Thurbeck stuff, and it's just a, a nice sort of still shot of you sweeping up in the cinema afterwards, which obviously. Directly relating to the story doesn't at all, but in terms of that little set piece you've done, it's a nice little way to end it. Look, I'm, I'm not pretending we just kind of went, fuck it, you know, <laughs> point the camera in that direction and stick it on. I mean, no, there was certainly more thought to it to it than that. Um, and, you know, I, I think that Tom takes takes far more credit than I uh, to the... To, to the, some of the some of the the filming that was done, yeah. um, but uh, it wasn't sort of the number one priority. I guess. I mean, it's all filmed in the X one, which you know isn't isn't the greatest camera on earth mm. by any means. It's quite a standard sort of uh, camera, uh, but but you know I, I I think it it stand it stands up. We, that was one thing we were worried about that people might think it was look you know it wasn't professionally done, but it was amazing how many people thought it was really really well edited and really well shot, which was perhaps mm. something we weren't expecting. But it's so hard as hell when you spent so long looking at something, like you know months and months and months staring at the same footage, you lose any sense of um, of its qualities. You you you, you know I, I I loathe the whole bloody thing now. <laughs> I've seen it so many times that uh, it's difficult to watch it because I, I notice every single frame that um, that I would change. You know what I mean? I, oh, I, I wish we'd lost two frames there. I wish it's the tiniest little things that you start picking up on. Um, and obviously, the the nature of it as well is when you're making a film that is about stunting people and in sort of you know, you, you, it's very unpredictable how those stunts are going to go, mm. and so. You have an idea in your head of what you want to happen, but rarely does it ever happen like that. And so, you know, you're, you're, for example, with the, the projecting of um, a certain thing onto the side of the Daily Mail building, um, you know, we had to spend, we had to buy this massive, massive projector that cost us a couple of grand for a day, then work out how to mount it onto a van, then buy <laughs> a... Uh, buy a, um, a a, ga- a, a petrol-powered generator. Stick that in the back of the van. Um, and we didn't even know whether, after spending all this time and money trying to make this this thing work, whether, whether it would actually end up sort of being something worthwhile. And, and so I find that quite an exhilarating part of the whole thing is that you are just sort of overcoming problems and and taking a punt half the time on certain stunts working out. I mean, we did one stunt against Rebecca Brooks that we didn't put in the film. It didn't really work. Um, and also there was sort of legal concerns to do with she was on trial at the time the film was coming out. But, um, but yeah, I mean, not, not everything did work. We had, we had to sort of uh, pick through and decide what, what, what our favourite bits were. That will explain the, the kind of hopeful stroke triumphant look on your face when the plume of smoke comes out the back of the van as the generator kicks right, in. I, t- I tell you what, there <laughs> was a, a lot of, uh, yeah, it, it was, I, I take full responsibility for, uh, <laughs> for buying the loudest, well, <laughs> I went for the cheapest, those are my mistake, I went for the cheapest generator I could find, Yeah, basically for, you know, for crews on, on the roads, 
and and thought that I could just stick it in the back of a van, and it was so loud and let out so much uh, noxious fumes that it became a real nightmare. And obviously, you're trying to power a hugely expensive piece of equipment um, with this this <coughs> generator that I don't really think gives the evenest current on earth. And we were completely <laughs> we were completely petrified of blowing this projector um, that was worth you know, tens of thousands of pounds. Um, so yeah, it was a bit hairy. We, we just about got away with it, I think. And, and also the notion of a covert operation. Well, that that, <laughs> didn't that, didn't that our covert operation turned out. You could hear us. You could hear us in bloody ten miles away with that. With people looking out the window at us and everything. It was uh, anyway. When we first turned it on, everyone looked at me and were like, "You prat! Why did you get this for?" And I was like, well, "I didn't try it out, did I?" When I was at the play, you know, can we turn it on and get the sound levels. Um, but uh, yeah, there you go. So when you when you've got the film finished, um, and you said you sh- the, the rough cut that went to Sheffield Docks was the catalyst to, to sort. Of, I'm guessing by the sounds of what you said earlier is that was like where you where you're going. I think we've got something here. So what was the journey with the film for for like for the for the likes of me to them see it on Netflix? Where 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 did it start to get that life where it started to find people that wanted to show it beyond you putting on YouTube? I mean, I mean, off the off the back of Sheffield. I mean, you know, it it was uh, we had you know the nerves of that for that sort of world premiere. Yeah, I yeah. always feel weird, weird calling it a world premiere when it was in Sheffield. But uh, there you go. That, that, is, that is what it was. Um, but uh, and when it went well, and you know, it was sold out, and people were laughing in the right places, and sometimes in the wrong places. But we'll, we'll take what last we can get, and <laughs> it, it, you know, and and people just really loved the film, and it was off straight off the back of that. We had people approaching us, and you know, setting up meetings and. That sort of thing. So by the time we left Sheffield, we had um, a, a number of offers on the table to distribute it. And I guess, you know, we, we didn't really have anything to compare it to. And, and so we were getting our stride and just thought, oh, this must be how things go. And this is just the, the way of things. And it's only really now, you know, that I've got to know other filmmakers and people have sort of congratulated on how well things have done, that you realise that that's, not, you know, that sort of, process is, isn't always the doesn't always happen there's great films that don't get distributed that that don't sort of get out there and so we we're very lucky to have a number of options and we ended up going with a, a company called film buff who are an american uh, distributor um who concentrate on digital distribution rather than tv although they, they they do do TV stuff, and we're sort of in talks a number of TV channels about the film, um, purely because the film is quite controversial and it is quite on the nose. And um, you know, speaking to a number of UK broadcasters who are, uh, were very interested, it became quickly apparent that in order for there to be any chance of getting it onto TV, we'd have to make significant cuts. Really, um, and. Yeah, oh, yeah, completely. And there was also the political issue. There was a real nervousness of um, of showing something that was sort of going after these powerful media individuals on um, on TV, and that you know you've got the commissioners, etc., who are worried about the backlash. Do you know what I mean? People like the Daily Mail give Channel Four a hard enough time as it is, um, and, and and it's not unusual for. Um, executives to find Daily Mail reporters and photographers swarming around their house after they've shown a particularly raunchy episode of 8 out of 10 cats. So, you know, think what would happen if 
all of a sudden, you know, Paul Dacre being doorstep with a double-ended dildo ended up on their channel, um, that Paul Dacre's not really going to take that very well. And, and so, you know, I, I think it became, for us, quickly apparent that that wasn't going to be necessarily the, uh, the quickest channel of getting it out there. Um, and we thought, you know, we don't have to, you know, TV is not the be all and end all. Do you know what I mean? There, there's yeah, digital yeah. distributors who don't, and, and digital, you know, people like Netflix who, who don't have uh, chips in the game in the same way. And, and, you know, so what, you know, Netflix was always somewhere that we were very keen uh, to get the film on. If we were to choose anywhere, um, when we sort of were first talking to distributors, Netflix was always the name that came up that we thought if we can get it on Netflix. That would be fantastic. And it, that would be our sort of goal. And see what sort of came out from that, and and, and that's happened. And, and you know, we're we're, we're really happy. And, you know, every it, it's amazing because every day I open my inbox and I've got emails from people from all over the world who've sort of seen the film. People that you would you know you wouldn't really imagine um, would be interested in a film about the British press who 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 don't don't seem to be watching it on the level of it being about these this media naval gazy sort of concerns of regulation of the British newspaper industry, but see it as just more of a story about, you know, standing up to bad guys and giving them a hard time. And, and, and that, I guess, is, you know, we're happy about that, that that's happened, that people see it as more of a universal story than just maybe the sort of the, the details of it. Well, no, that, I think I think I think that's that's the beauty of it, and and just to, I mean, you may you may have watched it too many times, as in someone that made it, but I think the important thing for me to say for the audience listening is this is this is a little over an hour long, and it rattles it rattles along at a good pace. There's there is laughs, and there is some absolute sort of corkers in terms of what you do with the stunts with people that we're not used to seeing in front of the camera. We're used to seeing their headlines projected around the world and and then made into news so that the the tv talks about their news and you, you <laughs> and they look uncomfortable and, and like i said earlier they don't they don't they don't obviously get too emotional about it but clearly it isn't part they don't see their role as having to be accountable for what happens which obviously i think i guess levinson drew out quite clearly didn't it that mm. Mm. The accountability is more Ronaldo and who he sleeps with than it is to them about how truthful it is who he slept with. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That 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 is a good way of putting it, indeed. Um. So what what are you um? So we we can see on in, in, in with Briflix. So in, in the UK, you can see it on Netflix. Where where else can people get to see Wong Road Reporter? Is it available on any other out? Yeah, I mean, you can you can watch it on iTunes or uh, Google Play or Amazon or um, Vudu. Voodoo, yeah, um, yeah, all, all of those uh, video on demand services you can get it, and um, uh, yeah, so uh, if, if you really feel the need to, or, or, or get it off one of the pirate sites, that everyone else seems to. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, don't do that! Don't do that! Um, no, it, it's um, it's quite funny because uh, within hours of the film sort of being on uh, on video on demand, all of a sudden it, it sort of goes all over the place on uh, on. <laughs> Um, you know, torrent sites, etc., and uh, you kind of get annoyed, I suppose, at first, and then you just kind of accept it and go, you know, people will, you know, hopefully, if they enjoy it, will. Um, I mean, you know, I'll admit that I've I have torrented films before, um, but you know what? If I really enjoy it, I've gone and actually bought the film. 
because I think that, um, you know, it, it's especially from the position of being a filmmaker now, I recognize the importance of actually supporting that process because uh, it's tough to make money making documentaries. I will tell you that. No, no, it's tough to make money making films, full stop. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. Um, <clears throat> so, what, what are you, um, what, what are you up to at the moment then, um, film wise? Where's the, where has One Rogue Reporter led you? Um, well, I'm making a series of films for The Guardian at the moment, which is uh, which has been fun. Um, uh, j- just sort of, you know, silly comedy films, uh, um, sort of following, you know, whatever current affairs issue I, I choose to sort of lambast, I suppose. Uh, and we're sort of developing that at the moment um, and, and going to see where that goes. But I'm also working on a, a new feature um, that I'm... Uh, basically, which will be following the the presidential election in America, okay. um, and it's called Shooting the Messengers, um, and yet again, it, it's a media focused film. Mm. Um, uh, but the details of which I'm gonna let's just say it's it, it, if you were to summarise it, it would kind of be One Rogue Reporter America. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so yeah, I have to kind of keep the target slightly under my under my hat. But you know, we're we're working on that at the moment, and uh, there's you know there's a way to go between the development stage and actually you know being on boots on the ground filming. But uh, we did it once, and uh, we're, we're confident we can do it again. Um, so yeah. So are you going are you going to need to be in disguise then to uh, to get under a few radars? Um. I, I don't. I, I don't think that. Uh, I don't think I'm well known enough that uh, it will be. A, it will be an issue at the moment. I think that, uh, particularly to Americans, uh, yeah. I think I'll probably. I'll go under the rate. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it'll be fun. I mean, it'll be a year shoot, um, and uh, right up to the election, and uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm very excited by the prospect of, of sort of. Um, of, of making another film and learning from you know the process of last time to sort of up it a level, you know what I mean? Make you yeah. know try and take things up a level, make it funnier, make it sharper, uh, make the stunts bigger. Um, so, so that's the goal. And finally, then you know, what one thing we like to ask people is to is to recommend us a British movie. Now, it would seem fitting in this in the context of this uh, podcast to recommend a British documentary that maybe has. Hmm. Uh, gone under the radar, been missed or forgotten yeah. in the annals of time that you think you could recommend to Britflix listeners? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you a documentary that um, I really enjoyed that, uh, that listeners may not have seen. Uh, yeah, again, it's a sh- quite a short documentary. It's called The Tunnel, um, and it is by a director called Jody Vanderberg, and it's about the Tunnel Comedy Club down in uh, Greenwich. Okay. Um, and and, um, and Malcolm Hardy, um, who's who's a legendary comedian, and and uh, yeah, it re- really is um, really is definitely worth a watch. I'm not sure where you can get it, but uh, but yeah, I, I I understand. I think that it, it's sort of about half an hour long, but they're, they're currently sort of making it into a feature. But yeah, if you can if you can catch the short version, uh, if it's out there, uh, give it a watch. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rich, for your time coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me. Thank all the best. Pleasure. My pleasure. All the best. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 